Youngstown, Ohio. What's cracking? Hey, yo. Making it big. Making it big. Dream of living wealthy and making it big. What's up and welcome back to the Grindcast. We have the godfather of jiu-jitsu in Tampa, as I like to call him, Mr. Rob Kahn in the house. Rob, thanks for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure, Simon. Thank you for having me. We got we got Rob on the road uh, today while he's in the car, but we'll take his time any way we could get it. And so um, let me start off, uh, Rob, you know, and introduce you to uh, some of the folks that are following the, the, the Grindcast uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I believe you were one of uh, Hoist Gracie's first few black belts that he uh, promoted uh, in the states. Yeah, he uh, no the first um, Hoist had never promoted anybody to black belts. Um, he, he had started teaching in the mid '80s in in uh, California, and he had not promoted anybody to black belts until he gave me and four others our black belts in 2004. So um, wow, that's still one of the one of the one of the proudest achievements. Um, you know, I mean, the Hoist had, had thousands of students over the over the, the course of that twenty-something years, and uh, you know, not until me and four other guys got our black belts in '04 did he ever actually bestow a black belt on somebody. So unbelievable! Uh, it couldn't be. You know, I'm still. That's still. I'm still super, super, super proud about that. You know, that's sick. Um, where where was that at, Rob? Uh, well, the actual promotion ceremony was in uh, North Carolina. Because uh, Royce does like this, uh, you know, he, he's he's like a rock star. He goes all over the, the world doing seminars. Um, in fact, I think he's the only guy who, who, who can uh, do the business model that he runs. He doesn't have a school. He doesn't want a school. Six months seminars, and then six months of the year he takes off, spends with his family, and he makes an incredibly comfortable living doing it. So more power to him. Um, but uh, I trained with Royce in, in, in Torrance, California. Um, and then, you know, I, I'm a New Yorker, born and raised. So I moved out to New York. I moved out to California to train with the Gracies. Because when I started in the 90s, if you wanted to do jiu-jitsu, uh, you, you had two choices. Pack your bags and move to Brazil. Or pack your bags and move to Torrance, California. Wow. And uh, I chose California. And... Um, after after a couple of years, uh, Hanzo Gracie had opened up in Manhattan, so I I, uh, I went back to New York. Um, I still maintained my my obviously my friendship and my my relationship with Royce as my instructor, but Royce and Hanzo are super cool, and they they were cool with me, you know, training a lot of Hanzos even though I was still being promoted um, and mentored by Royce, you know, three thousand miles away. Um, so I, I kind of had the best of both worlds. I get to train. That's more you know, common, I think. On. That's probably more common nowadays than it was back then. I know, you know, old school, you know, jujitsu, you know, uh, guys were not real open to, you know, having students training at multiple places, at least from my experience. Um, that is an, a dramatic understatement. <laughs> they, uh, they do not like it at all. I mean, at all. Back then in the 90s, I mean, that was verboten. Yep. Like you could not. I mean, thankfully, Hoist and Enzo, you know, have a really good relationship. And, and I checked, you know, obviously I checked with Hoist before I did it. And Royce was like, yeah, it's my cousin. Of course, go train with him, you know. And Henzo is about as nice and accommodating 
a guy as you're ever going to meet. So Enzo was cool about it as well. And then through that connection, I wound up doing a lot of day-to-day training with Rodrigo Gracie, who a lot of, you know, not as many people know about Rodrigo, but that dude is a monster, straight up monster. And he would have been, I think, um, he would have had a UFC title to his name if he didn't sustain a bunch of uh, pretty bad back injuries along the way. Um, and was Rodrigo, but, were, were you training with him in uh, New York? Yeah, yeah. And um, what was pretty cool was I trained with Rodrigo in New York a lot because when Enzo started getting real busy, you know, I did some, pri- you know, I was doing uh, privates with Enzo, you know, and they, not not regularly because they were, they were expensive, but, I, you know, I'd scrimp and save, and I, I mean, whenever I could, I'd take a private with Enzo. And then... Um, at some point, you know, when Enzo really started blowing up and the school started blowing up, he kind of said, like, look, man, I'm, you know, I'm not really doing privates that much anymore. I'm going to turn you on to my cousin, Rodrigo. And Rodrigo was a brown belt back then. And this is how freaking cool Rodrigo was. So, I mean, think about this nowadays. Like, I would get a private with Rodrigo for $75, right? Um, and the private would go, you know, for an hour. And I would learn a ton of stuff. Just a, a ex, like excellent instructor, and he would show you anything you wanted to know. Which, you know, back in the day, the Brazilians were really kind of they kind of kept a tight grasp on their techniques. They didn't really they they liked the money, but they didn't really love showing Americans in the nineties. Uh, <laughs> you know, the jujitsu. They they was a kind of a nationalistic pride thing. Yep. Well, Rodrigo, certainly Hoyce and Enzo were were you know exceptions to prove the rule. Because they, they definitely opened up their 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 you know their their mind to me, and they they really like gave me a, a lot of incredibly great insights into jiu-jitsu, and uh, you know I'll always be eternally grateful. But um, so get this, Rodrigo we, would uh, we do a private for seventy five bucks, right? And uh, we do an hour, and then at the end of the hour, he'd be like, "Okay, private's over. Now I got to get some training in. Let's roll." And we wound up rolling for 45 minutes for free. He would just roll with me because uh, he wanted to get a workout in. And then, uh, then he was like, hey, you hungry? Let's go downstairs and get some pizza. And we go downstairs, get pizza, and he paid for the pizza. <laughs> like, oh, wow. Um, I mean, you know, nowadays, forget about it. Like, what takes him, like $3,000 or $5,000 for a private? Um, yeah, I think know, Marcelo's could, getting that, ain't he? Something crazy like that. Yep. Um you know, I don't. I don't think he, he 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 charges quite as much as Hickson would. But yeah, I mean, Marcelo has to has to be getting upwards of a thousand dollars a private. I can't imagine it's a dime less than that. Now, um, when when you're you're from uh, are you from the Manhattan area? When you say New York, is that upstate New York? Is that in the city? What what part of New York are you from? Um, I, I was about maybe ten minutes north of the Bronx, so I was I was pretty close to Manhattan. Uh, I worked in Manhattan for 10 years, um, but uh, yeah, I lived in Lower Westchester. I don't know if you know exactly oh, yeah. what that is. But Very familiar. Yeah, I'm like right by the, I was not too, I was like a five minute ride, 10 minute ride to the Whitestone Bridge. Got you. And what got you into uh, jujitsu? So um, when I was going to college, I went to a college called Binghamton University in New York. And um you know, Binghamton was not a big sports powerhouse, to say the least. I mean, and that's being kind. Um, they had no football team. They had no nothing. And um, 
but like my thing growing up when the day I loved boxing, you know, my with my father, my father was a huge boxing fan. And that was our thing. Like when I was a kid, you know, I, I was like ten, eleven years old and my father would because back before there was pay per view, I don't know how old you are, but before there was pay per view there was something called closed circuit television. And you'd have to go to some pretty seedy places to watch these like high end fights. Like usually they were like dog tracks or horse racing tracks. And you know, after the races were over, all the uh, all the TVs that are, were mounted up there for the race results would would broadcast the fight. And um, you know, here I am, this like 10, 11, 12 year old kid going with my dad to go watch Hagler, Hearns, Hagler, Mugabe. You know, Leonard Duran won, Leonard Duran two, and um, and uh, that was like our father's son thing. You know, like um, was boxing. It wasn't baseball. It wasn't football. It was boxing. And um, the day I turned sixteen, I got a driver's license. You know, the day I got my license, I went and found the a boxing gym in in, uh, in the Bronx, and I started boxing at sixteen, and uh, I did that. You know, and but you know, I was still a kid too, and immature, and you know, I'd get real serious about boxing for like six months or eight months, and then I'd slack off and you know, not really um, commit the way the way you know you would you would really want to see somebody commit to to, to doing a sport like that. Um, and then in college, I started competing and training at this place called the Endicott Boxing Club, which uh, just a little fun fact is where John Jones is from. Uh, he grew up in Endicott, and um, so uh, my senior year of college, I knew it was kind of my last chance to do something with boxing because I was going to have to go get a real job after college. So I, uh, I committed to the Golden Gloves. Um, I went through the tournament, and you know, uh, lucky for me, I, I actually won the uh, the New York State Golden Gloves in '95 in the uh, in the novice division. Um, so to me, fighting was always about striking, about boxing. Like I didn't have a lot of respect for traditional martial arts from what I'd seen. You know, they they really didn't. Yeah, it wasn't me. wasn't popular uh, as much in the in the U.S. A lot of it was unknown too. Well, yeah. So just to give you a time frame when this was, um, when I got exposed to Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, UFC one had just happened, and UFC two was just about to go off. And I remember seeing the ads for those <clears throat> back, you know, back in the day. And, you know, they, they had it in the cage and they, you know, the ads, the marketing for it was very bloody and stuff like that. So I, I really didn't think it was real. I thought it was like wrestling. I thought it was another wrestling organization, you know, like steel cage match type of thing. Yep. And um, I, I didn't even give it a, a second thought. So lo and behold, I, I, you know, I'm going to college and I literally had just gotten done with the, uh, the, the, the you know, New York State Golden Gloves Tournament and um, a mutual friend introduced me to this guy named John Burke and John had probably had <clears throat> I was going to say um, like in terms of real time training probably about six months of training um, spread out over like a year and a half or two years but you know like I said if you were going to train back then you had to go to LA you had to go to Brazil Yep. So John would like for spring break, John would go out to LA for a week and train with the great, you know, train with the Grace Academy for a week. He'd come back and he'd work on what he learned with his buddies. And then, you know, next break he could get, he'd go out for, you know, a week. 
train and then try and remember as much as it could. And, um, and so, so his progress is obviously a lot different than it would be today when there's just, just wealth of jujitsu knowledge out there and YouTube and videos and, you know, besides the fact that there's a jiu-jitsu school now in pretty much every major city in the country. Right. Um, well, anyway, John <clears throat> was introduced to me, found out that I was a boxer, and uh, he said, hey, you know, I'd really like to uh, spar with you because, uh, you know, I've never sparred with a boxer before. And he kind of explained to me a little bit about jiu-jitsu. It made absolutely no sense to me whatsoever because, you know, fighting to me was about punching and kicking. Or, to me, it was more about punching. And... Um, so the day we go to spar, <clears throat> John's like a you know tall, lanky guy, and uh, he says to me, right, like literally right before we're gonna spar, he goes, "Look, man, I uh, I need to grab, like my style um, needs to grab you, so I can't, I don't want to wear the gloves. So what I'll do is I won't punch you. If anything, I'll just smack you." And I was putting on 12 ounce gloves, and um, I was like. Let me get this straight. You're going to smack me, but I could punch you with 12-ounce gloves. He's like, yeah, uh, if you're cool with that. I'm like, in my head, I'm going, bro, your funeral, like, no problem. <laughs> like, this is literally the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Um, you're going to get murdered. Because like I said, martial arts to me, traditional martial arts, I just didn't have a lot of respect for it. And any time I'd sparred with, like, somebody coming from a karate background or, you know, a black belt in Taekwondo or whatever, I always came away very unimpressed. Yep. Yeah, because they they just typically don't spar hard. So, you know, the first time they get tagged in the chin, it's like a whole new world for them, you know? And um, so, so me and John start going, and, you know, within the time they said go to the time I was on my back getting choked out was like 10 seconds. And I was like, what? Can I curse, by the way, on this podcast? Absolutely. I uh, I was like, what the fuck just happened to me? Um, oh, boy. It, it, you know, because, you know, like I said, I, I, won, I was in novice division, obviously, but I still, I still did win a, a state title. And, you know, I felt like, um, like I was, you know, I was young, a lot of testosterone. I thought I was like a Billy Badass. And... To be absolutely manhandled like that, I, I couldn't accept it at first. So I was like, let's go again. And we went again, and it didn't last any longer than next time. And we went again and again, the same result over and over and over again. So after, I don't know, about 10 of them, I was like, what are you learn doing this. to me? Yeah, I got to learn this shit. Yeah, and you know, and I, and I signed back then, like, and, you know, cause like I said, I started around 94, 95. Um, I felt like... You know, when the UFC um, went off, it was like a bomb going off in the, in the martial arts world. And people either did one of two things. They saw it, they saw the brilliance of it, they saw the effectiveness of it and said, I gotta learn that. Or they said, they put their, like I call it the ostrich defense. They stuck their head in the sand and said, well, that'll never work on me. Nobody will ever take me down. And um, they just pretended it didn't exist. You know, it didn't exist. And um, that's the way it was for a real long time. Like, people either assimilated with it or they, they got run over. Or, or, again, they would just stay in their little, their little pond 
where, you know, they all did, you know, whether it was Taekwondo or whatever, and they never, they never ventured outside of that. So as you, and, as uh, you got, as you started to learn, you learned from, from, uh, from him a little bit. And then, uh, where did you go from there? Did you, you, that's when you moved to California? Well, yeah. So I, I started, uh, with, you know, John, you know, is to this day, like my is brother. Is he in Orlando? He's, yeah, he's in okay. Orlando. All right. All right. Absolutely. Same guy. That's Absolutely. cool. Absolutely great guy. Um, love him to death. And, you know, he, like I said, he exposed me not only to the, you know, to teaching me, but he gave me like what was called the Gracie in action tapes. So before the UFC was a thing, when Orion Gracie first came over to this country, you know, he, Orion brought with him the Gracie challenge, which they had in Brazil for, for, for decades. And, but what happened was, <clears throat> you know, if you're a martial arts instructor and you have a student, you know, if you have a school with say, you know, whatever, 200 students, and you take the Gracie's up on their Gracie challenge and you go in there and it was all very respectful. And it was, you know, the Gracie's have always been, you know, a lot of people kind of misinterpret the Gracie's, what they, what they say, like they, they don't say that they're the toughest guys in the world. They say that their art is the most effective art in the world. And to prove that back then they did the Gracie challenge and they basically said, you know, we'll, we'll fight any other art we will guarantee that our guy is the smaller guy in the fight and you know we'll do it for free or we'll do it for money but you know we're really our goal is to show you the effectiveness and to show people the holes in their game because you know ground fighting was not a thing at all in this country mm -hmm. and um you know wrestlers were always nobody ever thought of a wrestler as, as being a, a you know a fighter and yet you know uh, any any good Division one college wrestler would have would have dumped Mike Tyson on his head in three seconds flat, you know. Um, so, so the Gracies started this Gracie challenge, and they would they would document the the fight uh, on you know VHS. And the problem is though, if you have a school with two hundred students and that's how you make your living, and you take the Gracies up on your challenge because you're so sure you're going to win, and then you get manhandled in twelve seconds by some skinny Brazilian who takes you down, takes you back and chokes you out, uh, you're not going to run back to your school and be like, hey guys, this new art I just found, yeah, we gotta way try better. This. Yeah. Yeah, way better than my Shaolin Mantis crane style, you know, Kung Fu, whatever. And so it didn't really get the, the bump that Horion, I think, was expecting from it. So, um... Uh, John, uh, what, what, what basically happened was Horion wound up, you know, it was kind of this really like closely held secret in, in, um, in California, you know, and it was slowly spreading, but it was really, really just this tight circle in like the Redondo Beach, Torrance area. Um, but pretty soon, you know, guys like Ed O'Neill, you know, Al Bundy started training. Um, how about, how, a, how about Ed O'Neill graduated from my high school? Is that right? Ain't that funny? Ed is, yep. Ed is the nicest Ohio. guy in the world. I got a great, remind me to tell you, because me and Ed have been friends for pushing 30 years now. Remind me to tell you uh, an Ed O'Neill story before this is over, because this will really give you insight into what an incredibly good man Ed O'Neill is. Um, He's from Youngstown, Ohio. Yes, you know? he is. Youngstown, Ohio. Um, he, um, and he played for the Steelers. Yep. Yep. So and, um, how did you make it? How did you make it to? Uh, how did you end up making it to Tampa, and uh, so, starting you know starting to grow that 
you know Brazilian Jiu Jitsu in in uh, in Tampa. Well, well real real quick, um, when uh, when like when Ed started training with the Gracies, another guy, the guy who brought Ed in was a guy by the name of John Milius. John Milius was the director and producer of Conan the Barbarian, as well as um, Apocalypse Now and some other you know major 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 uh, movies. And they basically said to Orion, you know, you got to come up with a, you know, we got to, we got to showcase this to the masses. And they kind of put their heads together and they came up with the UFC and, you know, some funny stuff like they, you know, they really wanted to, you know, really capitalize on, I, I, Hey, I'm sorry, Simon, one quick sec. I got to go through this toll here. One quick sec. Yep, don't sweat it. Um, I don't want to, uh, um, mess this up. Hold on one second. Um, so, so, um, so what people call it the um the uh the, so they, you know they they do their um what people call it they do their uh you know they get together and they're trying to figure out you know best bang for the buck on how to how to get the word out and you know they come up with this you know try and get it on pay per view and you if you heard some of the ideas that they were like throwing around before they finally came up with the octagon they were going to do like a moat filled with alligators around <laughs> the cage oh wow and uh <laughs> yeah like like they had some really crazy hair-brained ideas but they finally settled on the you know the octagon or whatever else and you know the rest is history the world got exposed so um so <clears throat> like i said I, I started with with john in 94 ish 95 and then um in in uh john was gracious enough him and hoist had hit it off they just for uh, for whatever reason like they just clicked like immediately they became fast friends um like off the off the jump and um this summer before i went out there john was going to go out for the whole summer you know for you know and, um and spend the entire summer training and this is how freaking cool voice is um so here he is he's already the ufc champ you know, like I said, UFC one had happened, UFC two had happened at this point, maybe. Um, so John mentions to Hoist when he's out there training for a week, he's like, "Hey, you know, I'm really looking to come out for uh, for a whole summer. You know, do you, you know, I'm a pro college kid. Do you know of any like? I, I just need a room. I just need a room with a bed. Like, I don't need anything. I just, you know, I just want to train. Can I maybe even can I sleep on the mats here? Like something." You know, because, uh, you know, I'm a pro college kid. Well, Hoist is like, hey, well, I'm getting married this year, but Marianne's not moving in until the end of the summer, so why don't you just live in my house? So he barely even knew John that well. Invited and him into him, his house. Crazy. Invited him into his house for the entire summer. So John now, as like a, you know, a 20-year-old kid, um, woke up every morning, got in the truck with Hoist, went to the school with Hoist, trained all day, went home with Hoist, they made they made dinner, they hung out, watched TV, and they really developed a really fast friendship, um, which, which for me really, really helped me out a lot because I was John's good friend, and, you know, it allowed me access to the Gracies that I, I probably would never have gotten without, without John, you Start know, or it would have taken me a long time. Yeah, it would have taken me a long time to try and develop that type of relationship with Hoist. But because, you know, he knew me and John were tight, um, Hoist, Hoist, uh, you know, was super cool to me and involved me in things that, 
you know, a brand new Steve Jiu-Jitsu just doesn't get to do with the, with the great. Because you got to remember, this is when Royce was the undefeated UFC champ. Yep, and, crazy. Blown you know, up all over. Um, People didn't even know what the hell happened. You know, what they just watched. mobbed everywhere we go. We get mobbed. Like, you know, here I am. I've been training Jiu-Jitsu like, um, what, six weeks at this point out in California. And I'm going to Magic Mountain with Royce Gracie, Royan Gracie, and their kids. Um and John Burke and hanging out, you know, at Magic Mountain all day with the Gracie family. Like, I'm talk like, about some love. Talk about some love yeah. for the white belts. You know what I'm saying? Right. <laughs> Giving some love totally, for the white belts. Totally surreal. Totally surreal. I wouldn't have changed it for anything, man. It was that summer was incredible. Um, so yeah, I went out. I lived out there for the whole summer, and I trained you get to like 12 hours a day. And um, because I was training so much. <clears throat> I literally, I got my blue belt in 14 days. Um, I started my training in earnest on June 1st, 1995, and Royce gave me my blue belt on June 14th, 1995. Um, I mean, that, that sounds better than it actually was because I literally was training 12 hours a day. So Love if it. you if you just look the at the amount of hours, yep. it's probably about six, what most people train in like six or eight months, I got done in 14 days. Yep. Um, you know, just because of the amount of training, I just immersed myself in jiu-jitsu. And um, so I trained out there for the summer. I came back to New York and, I, you know, people were networking around. Like people, you know, everybody wanted to learn jiu-jitsu. A lot of people were doing what I was doing, you know, which was going out there, um, training with, um, you know, the Gracies coming back to whatever their hometown was, grabbing a few like people to practice their stuff on. And uh, they would, you know, teach them stuff in return for um, having basically a practice dump. And yep. uh, that's kind of what I did for a while. I had like, there was actually two other blue belts in my area that, that we got hooked up to the academy. And so the three blue belts would get together. And uh, then there was a few other guys that they were training with. And we would just get together every single night and train and train and train and train and train and train. And train. Uh, so finally, I just packed up and moved to California. And I was out there for a year or so. Uh, I really didn't like LA. I did not like it at all. Outside of the training, I hated that place. Absolutely despised it. Um, I couldn't get out of there fast enough. And when I, I hurt my knee really bad in a, in a jiu-jitsu tournament, I ACL, MCL, meniscus there. And um, without jiu-jitsu in my life out there, it really became a miserable uh, circumstance of living out there. So... Um, I said, you know what, I'm done, I'm packing up, I'm leaving. Enzo had, at that point uh, had opened up in, in New York City, so I knew I'd have some ex you know, exposure to uh, high-level jiu-jitsu. Um, and with Royce's blessing, I moved to New York, and I, I started a, a network, a training network for, for Royce Gracie. It was the Royce Gracie Training Network, where I became the head instructor in Westchester, in, in Westchester County. Um, and I would supplement that by going down into Manhattan and training at the at Enzo's, and you know uh, taking the occasional private with Rodrigo as well. And that was basically my life for for the next decade. I would train every night. I'd get home from work in the Manhattan, you know, at seven o'clock. Where were you working get in my at? car? I started, believe it or not, as an accountant. I got an accounting degree, and uh, I worked for three years as an accountant. And then I, I despised it with such a passion. The only reason why I even did accounting was I wanted to go to the FBI. 
And uh, I knew they took accountants and lawyers. And I didn't want to go to law school. So I figured accounting would be the, the quickest way in. But it turned out back then, <clears throat> my vision, although it was correctable to 2020, um, my, it was the uncorrected level was too low for them. They wouldn't accept me because my vision was too low, uncorrected. And back then, laser surgery was an automatic disqualifier. Now it's not because there's enough, you know, there's been enough time to see that it Evidence works. and there's technology no, and stuff. Busy. Yeah, there's no problems, but so back ten years you were automatic disqualified. You did ten years in New York, and then uh, after ten years, did you move directly to Florida? Yeah. So w what happened was just this incredible convergence of circumstance and luck happened. Um, like I didn't tell you know I had made I made a decision like I, I was miserable you know like when I when I worked as an accountant you know I was miserable in accounting. And accounting didn't pay shit. But then I got into recruiting for accounting and finance, which paid significantly more money. But the stress levels were significantly higher, too. Um, so I was making a ton of money for a 20-something-year-old, a ton of money. But I was miserable. I mean, every day I'd wake up, and I swear to God, that alarm clock would go off, and I would contemplate suicide every goddamn morning. And soon that freaking alarm clock would go off. It's a dark place. Like, yeah, yeah, getting into that, you know, getting on that train and doing that. <laughs> Ain't no accounting like worth a, that shit right there. No uh, way. And it's like, you know, it's like everybody's a lemon. You're all lemons, like, in right. your suit and tie. You're all marching to the same direction. I just felt like, yeah, like, Caged in. like a lemon every day. I just, it just wasn't me. Like, I knew I couldn't do this full time. I, I knew I couldn't do this long term. I, I knew that just wasn't going to be my calling. So I decided I'm going to open up the school. Um, but I didn't talk to Hoist about it at that point. Um, and my, my ex-wife wanted to move back to Florida. She's from Tampa. And um, so she, she had been talking about moving back for a few years. And, and, and again, my experience in L.A. was so bad that I really didn't think a New Yorker would fit in anywhere else in the country. <laughs> um, I really didn't. And uh, so, like, I had no desire to move to Tampa. And she kept on me about it, kept on me about it, kept on me about it. And then I finally said, like, look, you know what? Uh, I'll give it a shot. I'll relocate to, to Florida for you. But, you know, you know she, had a, she had a good job herself. And I'm like, you know, I'm going to do this for a living. I'm going to give it a year to see if I can make this work. Um, that's the trade-off. Like, I'm going to teach you for a living. And uh, I, I want, and I want a year of uh, of trying to make it work. And um, sure enough, I was profitable my first month. And uh, I mean, not a lot of money, but I literally made made profit the first month I opened up. So it's fast for it a business. Worked, it worked out really, really well for me, you know. Um, and uh, you know, and then I mean, the relationships and and the. Uh, that, that I've garnered from this down here, you know, I, I couldn't be, I couldn't be happier with, uh, you know, number one, what I do for a living. I, I mean, I love jiu-jitsu. I absolutely, I love, there's nothing cooler than getting on the mat and, you know, you have a student who's struggling with a move or struggling with a technique and you point out one little detail that they're missing and that look in their eyes where they're like, oh, that's why. Oh needed that. God, I was looking I for that piece that. to the puzzle. Now I could connect yeah. the rest of the puzzle, right? And that never gets old, man. That never gets old. Like to this day, 
Like when I see that little spark, when I when I feel like I've I've just just connected the dots just enough for that person to make that move work for them, man, that just never gets old to me. It is such such a such an enjoyable, you know, and um, cool thing to see. You know, I know, uh, you know, I, I know one of the black belts that you promoted, you know, is a close friend of mine in uh, in, in bamboo, and uh, you uh, know, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if he, you know, he told you how our relationship started, but I, I went to go visit my mom uh, years ago, maybe six years ago, and um, I was living on the beach at the time, and I went to go visit my mom, and I was looking for a place to uh, to train, and she was right, you know, she lived right around the corner from uh, from where he was at, and uh, we hit it off so much in the first few times that I trained there, I started to drive, you know, with traffic off the beach sometimes would be an hour and a half, and I would come up there four days a week when i when i was in florida so i i, I know his jujitsu uh he attributes you know majorly to you and uh at that point you know right now i've been training almost uh ten and a half years so i already oh, had wow. i already had four years under my belt of yeah you know, unless i'm traveling i'm you know it's a three three to four days a week you know for me for the last decade and i know uh, uh so, so did you start with bamboo, or no. did you start somewhere No, I start. I started in. I started in Pitch uh, in Pittsburgh, uh, in the okay. gi, with Rodrigo uh, Jenquera, uh, who who came up with uh, Marcelo in uh, in Brazil. They were blue belts together. He was one of the one of the first ones here in uh, in in Pittsburgh. So I started training in Pittsburgh, and then uh, when I made my way down to Florida, that's when I really started to get. You know, introduced to Nogi when I started training with Bamboo and legs was a whole different world for me. You know, I felt like I start I started to bring that to Pittsburgh in my little, you know, in my area, which is uh, north of Pittsburgh. You know, I started bringing leg locks and, and stuff more than uh, everybody else I was training with was was accustomed to. And uh, so I got addicted to it. You know, I, I, at that point, four or five years in, I was starting to be able to hang with uh, some high level people. And, uh, you know, I played football in college and, you know, short and stocky and you know all of that stuff decently athletic so i was starting to be able to hang with people that had some experience and when i went to florida it was uh, a whole new a whole new world for me you know i felt like a white belt all over again with uh, so much stuff that i didn't know and from the leg locks to the uh smash the head shoulder pressure courtesy courtesy of you courtesy of you and uh, pressure, 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 how many man. black belts have, have you pr have you promoted uh, down there? I know you've promoted some sick black belts down there, and uh, in Bamboo's oh just one God. of them. You know, it's crazy. Like it's, it's it's hard to even keep track because you know the way that the, the jujitsu works, you have to be um, a black belt, I believe, four years before you can promote a black belt. So you know, guys say like Jr. You know, I'm sure you know Jr. Yeah, he's a beast. Um, He's, he's definitely a beast, but like Jr. is technically my black belt, but he did, you know, obviously his training with Bamboo. Bamboo's really his instructor, but Bamboo hadn't had the four years as a black belt yet. Um, so I, you know, so I, you know, me and Bamboo promoted them together, and, and you know, he is he's obviously Bamboo's student, but I, I, I am the black belt of record on him, you know, and so we've had scenarios like that where, you know, some of my students. Have uh, just didn't have the time and either way, uh, your grandpa, and no matter who promotes him, you know, that's, yeah, that started exactly. started uh, with I'm, you. I'm still the yeah, I'm still grand. If I'm not daddy, I'm grandpa to a lot of these guys. That's now. it. Um, but let's see. I had uh, my first black belt was Justin Garcia up in New York. 
Um, and it was great. I actually just did a podcast with him yesterday. We had a blast for like an hour on the phone. And then um, Matt, uh, Matt Arroyo, obviously. Um, See, it's South. The second. Yeah, he's the one who runs South. Um, Travis Nagel, you probably haven't heard of because he, he kind of, um, he'd run a school in Mississippi for a while. And then he went into becoming a physician's assistant and he still trains and stuff, but he's not like running a school or anything like that anymore. Um, but what a, like, what a savage on the mat he was. And, uh, Matt Arroyo is, is another just absurd savage on the mat, you know, bamboo. I don't need to tell you what a savage bamboo is. Um, then, um, God, there's just so many by Justin Popa, there's um, uh, your badger, ferret, um, Jesus, uh, midget, uh, midget twister. Um, yeah, midget little, yeah, representing yeah, the females. Yeah, damn much. She's still the only female black belt uh, that we have. Um, then we had, um, uh, you know, um, Lewis, um, Lewis and Aaron. Aaron's about to get her black belt. Um did Dan get his Jesus. black belt yet? Dan Martinez, yeah, oh yeah. Dan got his a couple of years ago. That kid is a savage, like beast. He is, he but is obsessed with training. Guys. Obsessed with he the training. Put of, the work in. You know, I'll put the he work is in. One of, without question, he is one of the best, um, you know, best young black belts in the country. Like he is a threat to beat anybody, anybody. Um, when that kid's on his game. He could beat anybody, period. Like, and period. That kid is just a, a monster. Um, well, and I know I'm leaving people out. Uh, oh, you know, there's just, you're already over 15, um, and you know I know there's there's more out there. You know, I, I had a business yeah. question for you. Building those those uh, you know, building what was a business that just was your passion and that you loved down there. What obstacles did you you know? Can you point out any or remember any obstacles in building uh, you know, building it down there? Anything you had to overcome, uh, uh, personal no, or professional, I, I, on or off the mat, obstacles? Well, I, you know, I honestly, like, um, I, I think, especially in the building of it, I, I, I took some good lessons from other people that I, I, I observed. Um, like, for example, like, um, I, I, I saw some people who, you know, went out and, and they kind of took the whole, you know, if, they, if you build it, they'll come mentality and so they they uh they put a lot of money into the school you know like kind of kind of went out on debt and with the idea that you know the school is just going to grow that fast and i saw the stress that that put on them for 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 a number of years trying to make yep. ends meet you know yep. so so i i really um i think the best lesson i learned back then was you know, I found a very small little aerobics room in the back of Paltas Fitness. And I remember um, my, my rent was 500 bucks a month. And I got, the, you know, the, the whole mat space, my whole gym, um, I, I'd say was probably, uh, I'm going to say 500 square feet of mat space, maybe. Um, that's it. Um, and... But, you know, I got to share the, the locker room for the gym. You know, like they allowed me to use the locker room for my students. So, um, but I only had, you, you know, if, and back then I was charging 100 bucks a month. So my first five students, I was breaking even. 
And uh, I think the, the first month I opened, I had like nine students. So I was, I was in the black, <laughs> you know, yep. and um, I stayed, I stayed two years. We grew to like a hundred students in that little spot. And I refused to move until I absolutely positively had to move. Like we just could not fit another person on that mat. So um, I wound up moving over to the Fletcher, Nebraska location. And, um, and then from there, uh, you know, we were there for like 12, 13 years. And then a couple of years ago, we just moved over to um, um, Florida and, and bears and uh, to a much more visible location. And, um, you know, I, I just, I never wanted to overextend myself. That was kind of like my it's thing. A great lesson. Like, ne like never overextend yourself. And, and, uh, that served me really well. Cause I saw the people, you know, they, they went out, they took out loans or God forbid, they took out like unsecured debt on, on a credit card. And, um, you know, then they get crushed and then now they're just, you know, they're, they're just running the, to cover the interest now every month. And, um, I just didn't want that to be me. You know, um, the other thing I'll say is like, I still have this incredible love for jujitsu. And like I said, it never gets old. Like you see a student, you know, progress, you see him getting better. And especially in those moments where it's something that you could literally trace back to something you said to him, um, that, that resonates and you could see that it changed his game. Like this, there's, it is such a gratifying thing, but by the same token, you know, anything you do every day that's making you a living starts to become a job to a degree. Um, now, I, like I said, I, I, my love of jiu-jitsu is not dampered at all, but like all the other stuff that goes into running a business, you know, gets, can, can get stressful and annoying. You know, the marketing, the this, the that, like I don't take a lot of great pleasure in, in that part of it. Um, you know, and it, and it does, like you, sometimes you can't, Great the two. So, um, you know, it, it, like I said, it does become a job to, to a degree, but that goes right out the window the second I get on the mat and start teaching and training. No doubt. Um, like that goes away, you know, that, that it comes back on, it comes back when you, when you, you know, when you're done teaching and training that day and you got to sit down and look at your bills and figure out the marketing and, and all the other stuff that you got to do. What tips, but, uh, you know, what tips would you give for, uh, maximum progression you know for you know i think the first one you already kind of gave away is that you know you put a few weeks you know it sounds like only a few weeks but you put six months of work into into two weeks so that's that's one way i would assume you would probably suggest for people to get better just obsess over it and put the put the time in condense a, a year into uh three months and you're going to progress you know a whole lot quicker yeah. than anybody else what other tips would you give you know if you're if i'm investing two hours here and i can invest the same exact two hours you know how do you maximize those two hours you know anything that you would suggest absolutely great question great question and um so i i have what i call the three pillars of jujitsu okay um jujitsu lends itself to technical discussion it just it is for better or worse it lends itself to a technical discussion meaning that you know you come on the mat as an instructor you got 20 whatever 20 30 on the mat, and um it's it's very easy for me to go okay guys today we're going to go over the triangle all right step a put your foot here step b you know this leg comes up and bites step c grab your leg you know and you could step by step walk through 
the student is now gratified because they, you know, they, they, they learned step by step or triangle. And so they feel like they've gotten something out of it and they have to, to, to a degree, but there's, uh, that's just the technical portion and, and the technical portion, I know this is going to sound crazy from a, from a jujitsu instructor to say this, but the, the technical portion of jujitsu is overrated. Um, technique without proper strategy, um, is, is, is I wouldn't say it's useless, but it, it's very, very hindered. So strategy, um, meaning the setup, the setup, you know, how do you get a guy who knows better to put his arm in that position? You know what I'm saying? Like, yep. how do you get a guy to, who, who you know, cause to catch it, you know, as well as I do, if the guy doesn't know jujitsu, he's, he's, he's done. He should have the luck anyway. Yep. He's going to, uh, he's going to put his arm in the wrong spot inevitably and you're going to catch him. But, um, uh, for, for example, uh, like technique, uh, when, you're, when you're talking about, you know, going step by step um, through the technique, again, it's just easy. It finds itself. And, I, and, and, and I, I'm guilty of this, too. I think jiu-jitsu instructors as a, as a whole kind of get a little bit lazy. And, you know, they come in and they say, okay, today we're going to go over the triangle. Today we're going to go over the armbar. Today we're going to go over the choke from the back or whatever. And, you know, people get a lot out of the class and they learn the technique. But <clears throat> how do you then, on a consistent basis, explain to somebody how to create these openings? On, again, and not some um, unresisting opponent or an opponent who doesn't know any better. How do you get a guy who knows better? to um, put his arm in the wrong spot. How do you get a guy who knows better to do some of this stuff? And that to me is the strategy. That's where, um, you, you know, this, this just strategic elements come in. And, and you touched on it uh, earlier for top position, for, for dominant position, you, you can't talk about technique unless you're talking about pain compliance and using um, pain compliance to force. I don't force moves. I'll never force a move. You can't force a move against a stronger guy, but I can make you so uncomfortable that I could force him to take. And, um, what, what I call it is a funneling system. So I know given a certain stimulus of pressure or pain compliance, um, I can get you within I, I know within probably two or three moves, what you're going to do given that certain stimulus. You know, um, given that certain pressure, given that certain stimulus, I know within two or three moves how you're going to react to it. The only question is how long is it going to take, you know, and that's really also contingent upon how, how effective I am at creating that pressure. Um, so now, um, uh, like I said, I call it funneling. I'm funneling you now down a path of three potential ways. That's it. Whereas if you don't funnel like that, you don't uh, use that pain compliance. Um, I call it Rolodex style jujitsu. And to me, Rolodex style jujitsu, unfortunately, is the style that I think more people play than any other. And what happens is because people are learning the technique in a vacuum, you know, um, you know, they're learning these techniques in a vacuum. Um, when they're, when they're now rolling, um, they're basically, they, they, uh, they get to a certain position, maybe a position of dominance, and they take like a snapshot in their head. They're like, okay, 
what's what's out of place what's wrong what can i take advantage of here and they have to go into their head like a rolodex and they run through their rolodex to see what is open given you know given what's there and guess what by the time they get to the answer the position has changed and instead of forcing you know, them the, towards the two or three things that you want that you're ready for exactly so instead of funneling them down the path well i know where they're going to be in the next few seconds they're going to be in one of three positions. I could easily keep, you know, if you do A, I got B. If you do C, I got D. If you do E, I got F. Yep. Quicker, so I, mental, I quicker mental response. Much quicker mental yep. response. In yep. fact, it's not even a response. It's an anticipation. Yep. So you're going from reacting to anticipating uh, to a large degree. Um, and it, it just, that, that's harder to, it's harder to, to explain to people um, and there's, there's a lot more, you know, ambiguity to, 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 uh, discussing that, um, than, than say, you know, um, like technique, technique is much more cut and dried, you know, A to B to C to D. And, um, so, so now I said there's three pillars. So, so the one pillar obviously is technique and again, I'm not shitting on technique because obviously jujitsu, the techniques of jujitsu is really one of the main things that separate it from any other martial art. But the strategies of jujitsu is really to me what separates it from, you know, like go, go to any Sambo book or any judo book and look up triangle choke or arm bar. They look just like the same triangle choke or arm bar that we have in jujitsu. Right. The difference is the strategies we employ to get the person to make those mistakes because in those arts, they tend to force moves. We force mistakes. We create, you know, scenarios that force mistakes and then take advantage of the mistake. Does that make sense? It does. Yep. And, so uh, technique, so, so, strategy. Yeah. And the last piece, which to me, believe it or not, will give people the best, the biggest bang for the buck in the shortest period of time. Um, I call it training structure. So you have technique, you have strategy, now you have training structure. So the easiest way for me to explain that to you is um, if, uh, if we could get jujitsu down to its two biggest components would be offense and defense, right? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think you could, you, you could, uh, you could break jujitsu down anymore. Uh, in terms of two bigger components and offense and defense, right? Well, I don't think anybody will argue with me that defense is much more natural, much more intuitive, um, you know, and, and I, could, you, I could prove that out to you in two seconds because um, what's the first thing you notice in your 10 years of training when you have a newer student come on the mat and he's been there for a couple months, what's the first thing you notice when he starts getting better? He's harder to catch. Right. Um, his, his anticipation, his understanding of the armbar, he might not have the understanding of the armbar to the point where he could react, um, and do it on you or do it on a, you know, do it on a, a, another student just yet. But he now at least sees the visual cues of visual cues of when the armbar is coming and he can defend it much better. It's much more instinctive. Um, so, um, offense is much harder to learn than defense. Yet most people are under the mistaken belief that, um, to get good, you know, you always hear iron sharpens iron and all this type of stuff. And there, there's truth to that. But, um, 
the, the example I like to use is, let's say uh, you got a, a student who's, you know, let's say he's a newer, newer blue belt, maybe, a, or an experienced white belt, you know, verge of blue belt, right? Um, I'm going to give you two scenarios. You tell me um, what you think. So this, this newer blue belt comes in, and in the room that day for the next six months, he's got me, Matt Arroyo, you, uh, Bamboo, JR, um, you know, uh, pick, you know, Tony Way, um, uh, you know, pick your poison, you know, that, that, that murderous row of people, right? Um, so every day, those are his farm partners, okay? Um, after six months of training, of hard training with those murderers, with that murderer's row, guys. Um, how many arm bars has that guy caught? None. None. How many triangles? None. None. So, you know, like the, the myelination of nerves, the only way you could myelinate your nerves to react in, in, you know, in, in a timely manner to get these submissions is by conscious reps of them under resistance. You know, there's a big difference between, you know, like, and obviously you need this, like you, you need that moment, you need that part of class where I, I rep it on you three or four times, you rep it on me three or four times, we switch back and forth with no resistance. Of course, you definitely need that. But what you, what you need every bit as much if or is a resisting opponent that you can still get it on. So yeah, live training um, with someone that's uh, your your pace or even below. Yes, especially below. So, um, so I, I I institute what I call the seventy thirty rule. So out of, out of every ten rolls, seven should be with people you're a step ahead because. Really, when we boil this stuff down, and, I, and I'll give you the name of a great book that will like really do a good, much better job of explaining it than I can. Um, the the myelination of nerves, and um, I'm not. Are you familiar with with the process of myelination? No. Um, so basically, I don't want to you know like spend too much time on this and bore your listeners. But so with any any athletic movement, whatever it is, playing guitar, playing drums catching a football, throwing a football, whatever. Uh, the first time you do it, your body basically runs a wire, for, for lack of a better way of describe, describing it. It runs a wire from, from your brain to the, you know, the muscle groups that, that are being used, right? Um, so let's make that the, the, uh, the, the, the example. So uh, the first time you do an athletic movement, your body just strings a wire like an electric from A to B, right? Well, that wire is, is not been coated by any rubber. So there's, there's a lot of leakage of electricity. The refractory time's a lot slower. Um, a bunch of different things are, are a problem. Well, every time you do that move over and over and over again under real situations, under real pressure, under real training, your body puts a coat of myelin on it. Myelin for, for, uh, is basically rubber. It's basically rubber. And they've, they've done experiments where they, you know, when they go into the brains of like musicians or athletes, you can visually see without microscopes or anything, you can see incredible amounts of myelin in their brain compared to a non-athlete or compared to a non-musician. You can visibly see how much more myelin 
is is in their brain and in their central nervous system compared to somebody who is not some type of high level athlete or musician or whatever. So the myelination of the nerves is really what speeds your reaction time for it, your anticipation, your refractory time, meaning how fast you could fire it again, all that stuff. So, you know, what, what are we doing with training? It's really, if you want to really boil it down is to build up myelin on your, on your nerves so that you can, you know, you're, you're and, and think about it this way, because myelin, um, if, uh, if you don't train for a while, you know, you always hear, oh man, I haven't trained for a while. I'm rusty. Right. Um, myelin, it's almost like you ever, you ever hear about like the George Washington bridge, they paint the George Washington bridge. And when they're done painting it, what do they do? They start over and they paint it all over again because the paint starts to chip. It starts to wear by the time they're done, there's already starting to be wear and they don't want that metal to start getting oxidized. So it, there's a constant process of painting that, that, uh, that bridge over and over and over again to keep it from being off the metal from being oxidized. Well, if you don't, if you, you know, let's say you've been training for a long time, you've myelinated the hell out of your nerves, but now you take a long break. Uh, you come back, you feel rusty. You feel rusty because the myelin's breaking down and you haven't been, you haven't been staying on top of, of recoding it by training. So, so that's why there's like that feeling of rust, and it takes you a few weeks to, to get back to normal because your body has to now start recoding. Again, you don't lose all the myelin, but it does start chipping and breaking down a little bit. Um, so, you know, when I'm talking about training, uh, myelination of nerve, to me, when I'm rolling, it's not about winning. It's not about losing. It's about myelination of nerves. I need to get my reps. I need to get my armbar reps. I need to get my triangle reps. I need to get my back reps. I need to get my escape reps. I need to get everything. I want to just take like basically an inventory of my game. And every time I roll, I want to get to those positions as many times as possible against a resisting opponent to keep that myelination level high. Makes a lot of sense. A lot of sense. Now, there's a, there's a book that I highly recommend if you, if, if you like the sound of this stuff. In fact, I, 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 if you got a minute, um, I'll give you a couple examples out of this book that will absolutely blow your mind. So um, the book is called The Talent Code, right? And it's, it is all about what I just spoke about. So anybody who's listening who, who's, who likes the sound of this stuff and then wants to improve their athletic performance. You said it's The Talent so Code? The Talent Code, yes. Um, anybody listening who wants to improve their athletic performance in any endeavor, get The Talent Code. It is a, it's not a jiu-jitsu book. It is an athletic performance book. It is phenomenal. So, um, give you a couple quick examples that you're gonna, you're gonna, it's gonna blow your mind. So, uh, historically, up until the 60s and 70s, Brazil was not was not a powerhouse in soccer. They were a laughing stock in soccer, right? Um, you know, uh, like as far as we know, I mean, in our lifetime, all we've known is that Brazil puts out the best soccer players in the world. Um, that was not the case in the 40s and the 50s and, the, and even into the 60s. It was not the case at all. So what happened? What changed? Well, um, in, you know, Brazil is a poor country. Well, I lost it, you. It, it, I lost you when uh, you said sorry. Brazil is a poor country. Yeah, Brazil is a poor country, so, but they wanted to do something for the youth. 
of, of, of Brazil. So um, in, the, in the favelas and in the inner cities, you know, they didn't have the space or the money to make these big soccer, soccer fields. So what they did was, um, you know, the rough translation, it's called city soccer, right? So city soccer was, you know, I don't know how, how long a regular soccer field is, but let's say it's 120 yards. Well, a city soccer field is like 40 yards, right? Like less than half. And um, so what happened was completely accidentally by shrinking down the field like that, um, I don't play soccer, but let's say just for argument's sake, me and you are playing soccer on a regular field. There might be, and again, I'm just guessing, there might be during the course of the game six or seven times where I have to ball handle I have two defenders in front of me and I got to get by both of them with ball handling skills to, to, you know, to pass to somebody else or to go take a goal. Right. So maybe that happens in a regular soccer game six times, uh, you know, six times or to 10 times, I'm guessing. I don't know. Well, when you shrink down the, from, you know, 120 yards to 40 or 50 yards, that number goes from six to 10 to like 25 to 30. It's more reps. Right. More live more reps. reps, more more myelination, and do you know who was one of the the absolute first players to come out of that city soccer league? It wasn't Bamboo Wisman, was it? No, Pele. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> Pele, come on. Pele, the world, the world, you know, the history's yep. greatest soccer player yep. was one of the out of that whole city soccer league, and they accidentally hit on how important it is to myelinate those myelinate those nerves by getting more real-time reps and almost overnight not in a generation in a couple of years they went from a, a international laughing you know laughing soccer to an absolute powerhouse in soccer just by tweaking their training methods wow um two other quick examples i i forget whether it's north korea no not north korea i forget if it's, it's definitely south korea there's a there's a single uh tennis club or course a tennis court in south korea that i don't know exactly what they're doing but same thing they accidentally stumbled on a way per training to get to get more myelination uh, uh, on their on their tennis players, their women's tennis players, and wouldn't you know it? Um, this one tennis court produced more women's LPDA or not, you know, whatever the women's um, tennis tennis league is. They've produced more Would professional you uh, women's uh, tennis players than the entire United States. Would you compare? Would you compare that to the example you're using on, uh, you know, just training, getting more reps on people that are, you know, still that are below what your experience level is to get you more reps at, at taking a shot? That's exactly what it is. It is exactly that. And you know, you know, like the example I, I used before. If uh, you know you're rolling with Jr. and Bamboo and, and Matt Arroyo and all these killers. You're just not getting the mileage. I mean, are you going to get a lot of benefit yeah. from that? Of course, you're going to see higher level setups. Your defense is going to get sharper. Yeah. You know, uh, a lot of you, know, you get used to being uncomfortable in bad positions. Like, there's plenty of benefit that comes out of training with better guys. And you for think sure. it's seventy thirty? You think you should do seventy with people below yeah. your skill level? I think for most people, especially you know, in that 
area. 70-30 is the magic number. More and more experienced, um, and you know you got your game down more and more. You could drop it back to like a sixty forty scenario, yep. but uh, to be to be the best bang for the buck. And let me tell you, this is not just something I'm um, like guessing at. I've been I've been doing this. Uh, you know, obviously, I've been teaching now for almost thirty years, but I've been employing this whole myelination of nerves into teaching for, for the better part of a decade now. And I've seen incredible results from it. Incredible results. You know, I noticed the, the relationships, you know, that you've built too. And I think in, uh, in, in closing, that was the, the last question I wanted to get from you was, you know, you mentioned some of the mistakes that you avoided, you know, the things that you would suggest for somebody opening the gym, not overextending yourself, not, you know, getting yourself in a lease situation where you're, you know, going heavily in debt. What what things would you say you would suggest in closing for somebody trying to build a gym to do? Uh, anything else you would you would that sticks out to you as far as building relationships? Anything to get that number to a hundred students? You know, quickly. You, you know, I, I obviously the you know marketing is 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 the lifeblood of the school. Um, you know, Facebook marketing seems to be the best bang for the buck. Um, um, I, I would, um, um, you know, ask questions. Like one of the great things about uh, so many people from so many different walks of life, like, you know, they all, you know how it is. Jiu-Jitsu is like a way of life. And people, like, there's no such thing as a casual fan of Jiu-Jitsu. Either you're really like in love with it or you, you want nothing to do with it. And, you know, your students will do anything to help that business thrive because that becomes their second home. And, um, you know, the combined expertise at a school, whether it's marketing, whether it's, you know, operations, whether it's productivity, whether it's whatever, there are so many, you know, there's such a diversity of, of skill. At, at a school, you know, take advantage of it, you know, talk to people, pick their brains, like, you, you know, in, in whatever field that they, they're an expert in, you know, like some people think they, you know, they know they have all the answers. You don't. And, you know, it, it being a jiu-jitsu instructor and, and running into all these different people of all these different walks of life, you have access to so much knowledge that, that people would be happy to help you out. And, you know, answer a and question you know or, or yeah, point you in the right direction. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things I don't know, um, but I, I almost always know where to go to find the answer. Love it. Love it. Well, I, I just want you to know? thank you. Uh, I want to thank you for your time today, Rob, and, and uh, thank you for what you've done for the jujitsu world and community, uh, especially in Tampa. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe one day you got to you got to hook me up with uh, with Ed O'Neill. Former uh, Earth, oh, Earth, oh, Earth oh I'm, I'm sorry. Can I get, can, do you have time for that one Ed O'Neill story? Abs- absolutely. Got to get it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Ed, like when I first started training there, you know, my, the, the, I met Ed, um, married with children was still on the air. So, um, my father, to say my father was a married with children fan is like, probably one of the bigger understatements ever said in, in, in life. Uh, my father is a fanatic, was a fanatic. In fact, to this day, he still watches 
them on VHS every day. He still watches Married with Children. So um, when I when I met Ed out there, Ed took a liking to me right away because he, he most people know this, but he is a huge boxing fan. I mean, huge boxing fan. Um, I really like to. Um, uh, I, I fancy myself as being like a boxing historian and I very rarely run into somebody who knows more about the history of boxing than I do. And Ed is that guy. He knows he, he, he is like a library of, 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 of uh, boxing. boxing. Youngstown's history. a big boxing yeah. community. Yeah. Yeah. Kelly Pavlik's out of there. The Ghost and, uh, just had Kelly. I just had Kelly over here last month. Oh man, I loved him, man. He was, he could have, you know, he obviously he had some personal demons, but man, that guy, he could have been, you know, one of these gener one of this generation's best fighters, man. Uh, if he, if he, if he, uh, just did a couple things differently, he was super talented guy, man. Yep. But, um, so get this, um, Ed, um, you know, I, I, I had, you know, uh, and again, like me and Ed were friends, we would train, what would happen was we train, uh, you know, Ed would take a private with Orion. Then after the private, a lot of times, you know, he loved to talk. Boxing. So like we'd go over to like Sioux Plantation and we'd, we'd talk boxing for, for an hour. Uh, or we'd sit around the school, you know, the academy and talk about boxing. Well, he was coming into New York. I'd moved back to New York. It was 98. And um, he, uh, he, w he called me up. He said, hey, man, for a whole month, and I'm gonna, you know, I want to get some training in. Uh, can, you know, can you, uh, can we hook it up? And I'm like, yeah, of course. So, um, you know, I, I made the huge mistake of telling my father that Ed O'Neill was coming to town. So my dad's like, I got to meet him. 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 I'm like, all right, dad, but listen, you know, nobody likes to talk about their job. Like you like the Steelers. He played for the Steelers. Talk to him about the Steelers. You love boxing. He loves boxing. Talk about boxing. Just don't, don't talk about married children, please. You know, like when you meet them, right? So, so I call up Ed and I'm like, look, Ed, man, I, I hate to ask this of you, you know, but my dad's a huge fan. Like, is there any way I can, you know, bring you by and introduce you to my dad? No joke. You know, his response was, um, of course, no problem. Would you like to come to dinner at your house or something? Love it. And I was like, are, are you, uh, I'm sorry. What, what did you just say? He's like, yeah, yeah, do you want me to come to dinner at your house or something? I don't know. What, what do you want to do? I'm like, you come to dinner at my house, my family's house? He's like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. So, so not only does he, he comes to my family's house, so he sits down to my, my family's dinner table with my mother, my father, and my sister. And, oh, of course, pumped. oh, my, oh, but get this. This is now still one of the, now I was mad as hell at my father for the first few minutes, but then, it totally turned out to be a great thing. Um, I, you know, after telling my dad over and over and over again to lay off the matter with children stuff within like 10 minutes of Ed being there, my father's like, remember the scene when you were in the supermarket and you kept dropping the boobs. So the girl with the big boobs had to keep bending over to get the, and I'm like, Oh my God. Like, but do you know what Ed did? This is how freaking gracious this guy was. Ed went into character and for about 20 minutes did scenes for my father. He remembered the, the, the dialogue and he did scenes for my father for about 25 or 30 minutes. Wow. Whatever scene my wow. father wanted to, wow. to do. And let me tell you, Simon, 
to watch him transform into Al Bundy was one of the coolest things I've ever seen because, you know, Ed, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of Ed in Al Bundy, but you know, there's certainly not the same guy at all. But like the only way I could describe this was he like shook his face and he just became this cartoon version of Ed and, and like, his, you know, his mannerisms, everything. And I just watched him transform into Al Bundy in my living room. It was one of the coolest freaking That's things awesome. I've ever seen. Cause I was also obviously a huge Marrow Children fan, not like my dad, but I mean, you talk to him it, ever it, now. Oh yeah. We talk about once every couple months. We still, anytime there's a, basically you could set your clock to it. Like when there's a, a big boxing match, the That's next true. day we talk for like two hours. Like guaranteed. You got to do me um, a favor. The next time you sure. talk to him, you got to tell him, I saw him. I think he was on Boom Boom's podcast, Boom Boom Mancini's in Youngstown. Yeah, yeah. You got to tell him, you got, this, you got this young kid from Youngstown, Ohio, his hometown, same school, first ever state championship in football. We won. And I was the first ever to do it. I was a captain on the team. So you got you to gotta help me yeah. out and see if, see if he'll jump on the podcast and, uh, and call in one day for me. I absolutely will. I promise you. You the man. By the same token, you did not score four touchdowns in one one game at Polk High. No, <laughs> not like Mister Bundy did. Absolutely not. Come on, you the man. Hey, I look forward to seeing you down in uh, down in Tampa. I'll be there in November. Maybe we can uh, maybe we can link up. Maybe. I, I, absolutely, and I promise you, when I talk to Ed again, I will I will uh, I will mention you to him and see if I can get get him to uh, do a call calling on your show. You the man. You the man. All right, I appreciate you, brother. Thanks, Hobby. Hey, I appreciate you, man. Thanks right, for having right, me on, man. I right. really had a good time. Talk soon. Count money, man. Money, Stack man. riches. Trying to told, told him I'm a beast, bud. <laughs>